Live from the heartland and the crossroads of America, it's Tony Katz today. This story out of Michigan, repealing right to work, and they are so proud. They are so proud to let the people of Michigan know that you can only have a job if you give money to other people. If you're giving money to other people, then everything's fine. If you're not giving money to other people, well, then there's a problem. Well, what happens when I give money to those people? Oh, we give it to other people. Well, do I have a say in who those other people are? Not really. Well, what if I find those other people objectionable? Well, if you find them objectionable, you probably shouldn't be working here to begin with. Well, can I work somewhere else? Yes, but you'll have to give money to them too. And what will they do with the money? Oh, it's the same thing, so you might as well stay here. Can I say that maybe we should give the money to other people as opposed to the people you think we should give the money to? Absolutely not. Well, why not? Well, that would mean you're a bigot. I think I've got it all covered. I think I got it all understood. I think I've got it well in hand. Tony Katz. Tony Katz today. Good to be with you. Find everything TonyKatz.Locals.com. It is just that easy. TonyKatz.Locals.com. That's how you do it. The phone number, 833-GOT-TONY, 833-468-8669. They're so proud repealing right to work. This is what happens when you give the progressive left control. You already had a progressive governor in Gretchen uh, Whitmer. You didn't get rid of her. Uh, Elections have consequences, and now you suffer. Now you suffer. 2017 vote in the Senate is going to go back to the House, where, of course, it's going to pass. What it means is that you can be forced into unions. Right to work means you don't get forced into unions. You can join if you choose. So uh, said differently, um, it's very obvious that the people who are favoring this idea of you're not allowed uh, to be in a right to work state, you're not allowed to decide for yourself, they favor force. That is what happens when you don't allow people to make a choice. You say force. You're saying force first. You have to belong to this union if this shop unionizes, and you have to pay these dues, and those dues then go into the pockets of the political left who favor the unions and support things like getting rid of right to work. This is a really ugly, if not flat-out violent circle that continually takes place. There's, there's no rational thought that comes from this. There's no way to view this and say this makes perfect sense. It doesn't make perfect sense. It's hateful. It is hateful. Now, this is how the Washington Post wrote it. And I loved this writing of it because this writing of it really tells you exactly how far off base the progressive viewpoint of this is. And I must admit that we're having a real conversation here about about exactly the differences between conservatism and progressivism, which is really the difference between you making your choices and others making the choices for you. Well, Tony, you don't believe that about abortion. You're right. When it comes to actual life, there seems to be a standard that the conservative holds to. But we'll get to that later. Such laws, meaning right-to-work laws, this is how the Washington Post writes it, have been credited with the dramatic decline in union membership and growing income inequality in the United States 
over the past several decades as some workers choose to save money in the short term by not paying for union dues when it's optional. By not having forced union uh, membership, by by, uh, having right-to-work states, what you've done is increased the pay gap. That's, That's precious. That is fantastic. Good on you. My gosh, George Orwell tips his cap. That's a pleasure. People make choices. And I'm willing to bet you all the money in my pocket against all the money in your pocket that everybody who runs a union shop right now is going to tell you that, well, we haven't kept up with things. Look at the pay gap differential. This is terrible. They I guaranteed that's what they're going to say to you. They're not going to say, oh, well, you belong to the union. Everything's fine. Those people didn't belong to the union. Not fine. Do you think people don't know how to decide what's in their own best interest? Do you think they don't know how to, to take a look at a situation and say, wait a second. I see a better idea. Wait a second. I see a better opportunity. Wait just a moment here. Aha, it turns out if I put $20 into this organization, they will reward me with $200. If you tell me I put in 20 and I get out 200, I'm totally in. If unions were a great deal that provided a great value, people would do it without the coercion. And if unions were so benefiting the union member as to get rid of the inequality gap, whatever the thing they call it now who knows every day it's different wouldn't they have done that on their own i will bet you that they would have done that on their own because people are smart i know this is this is seen as a a a anathema even uh to people on the political left and, and and to some people on the political right people are smart now Not everybody uh, is an expert at algebra. Not everybody can find the area under the curve. Not everybody could quote the sonnets uh, of Shakespeare. Not everybody is a historian. People are capable and are extremely good at recognizing, wait a second, that's good for me. That's not good for me. And they therefore make decisions based on those options. This is one of the reasons that we take a look at government largesse and we say this is not a good option because it moves people from the option of, well, I got to go create a living for myself. I have to go to work. I have to support my family. And that um, is, is an option that, well, takes a lot of effort as opposed to an option of government provides this, government provides that, government provides the other. The other side of government provides this, that, and the other is that government then says, okay, and now this is where your vote is because these people, they won't give you this, that, and the other. The creation of the dependency class. Again, the conservative opposes the concept of the dependency class because, well, being in the dependency class is not a value. It's destructive of the soul and of the mind. It creates no value, and it's important that people create value in themselves, and sometimes going to work is that value. Looking what you created at the end of the day, looking how you succeeded, that's better than things being handed to you and doled out to you, spoon-fed to you. That doesn't create value. That creates uh, something that's missing from the soul. But these people in Michigan are cheering this. 
The union folk are flat out cheering this all over the place. Oh, they're super duper excited about this idea that they're going to repeal a right to work and you won't have any options. But if it was such a good deal, you would have made the option anyway. They don't bring a cogent argument and they don't care. It needs to be understood that they don't care that they didn't bring a cogent argument. That part doesn't matter. What matters is that you get another 500,000, 2,000, 5,000, 42,000 people, whatever the number is, paying dues to then push to the politicos who will then push for further union opportunities. Um, my God. You think that there's a crime family in New York who can come close to this? You think there's a crime family that could... My gosh, this is special. Well, unless, of course, they're getting part of the union dues. You know, that could be very possible. You never, never know. This is this is as organized crime as it gets. And the result of the organized crime is... Uh, Candidates getting dollars based on coerced, based on coercion. I said that right? Yeah, I said that right. No, that's absolutely correct. That's absolutely correct. Their money is taken from them for the pleasure of actually going out there and trying to create a living for themselves in something that they want to do, and they're told they have to belong to this group. I'm actually not an anti-union guy. I've, I've never been. I find union leadership to be abhorrent and disgusting and twisted and sick and altogether awful. And certainly I oppose force. Coercion is force. Now you can argue that coercion exists in everything in life. And that's a really fascinating conversation. One that requires a bourbon and a cigar and sitting down and and really engaging. You can't have this job unless you give that guy your money every week. Tell me how that's a better that how tell me how that creates a, a better society. Tell me how that creates more value, that coercion, that theft. And again, free market at play. If the union was really providing a better life, wouldn't people flock to it anyway? If the union was really creating better wages, if the union was really creating better opportunity, wouldn't people naturally fall to it? Of course they would, because people are smart and they do what's in their best interest. They do what creates them their opportunity. Now, sometimes you have people who go the other way. I'm talking about in the main. This idea that somehow people are incompetent, incapable, fools, whatever, it's an awful way to treat people. It's ugly and it's gross. And when I see it from politicos, I'm like, you're sick, twisted, you know what? If the union shop was better, people would have already gone to the union shop. But the union shop is not necessarily better. And that's why I get such a kick out of what the Washington Post put here. Such laws, right-to-work laws, have been credited with dramatic decline in union membership and growing income inequality in the United States over the past several decades, as some workers chose to save money in the short term by not paying for union dues when it's optional. They made a choice. And they're very happy... One would assume with their choice because they didn't have to be forced into a union. They could have just joined if indeed the shop had a union. So Michigan will make this official soon. It is now up to Midwest states that border Michigan that aren't uh, crazy 
And so that would really leave Indiana and Ohio, right? My, my beloved Indiana and Ohio to put up signs that say, hey, Michigan sucks. Come to Indiana. That, that's the sign you got to put up. Michigan hates you. Indiana says, welcome, open your business here. Or you know what? You don't even have to say Michigan hates you, although they clearly do. Open your business here. Indiana, we think you should have a say in your life. Anything. I don't know what Ohio's going to do, but I don't live in Ohio, so I have no idea how they're going to approach the thing. If, if Midwest states aren't jumping on this, trying to pull businesses out of Michigan, they're nuts. Missing a golden opportunity. And for the people in Michigan who realize, hey, this is ugly, maybe i got to go somewhere else, I encourage you to move. But leave that garbage where you are. You know, I'm a guy who left California and, and, and came to Indiana, and I was welcomed with open arms because I didn't bring any of the crazy of California with me. I Oh, no, 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 you're nuts. I'm leaving that behind. One of the, I mean, okay, I got the gig, but one of the reasons I left, it had to be left behind. It had to be left to the side. You can't bring that with you. Tell them. People want to move to Indiana from Illinois? Do it. Do it. Just don't bring any of that Cook County crazy with you. Leave the Cook County crazy there. Just, just, just leave it with J.B. Pritzker and that state and enjoy the collapse. Come to a place that's rational. So there's a, there's a theory that you don't do that. And I still know people who live in California who believe you got you to fight for this. No, you know, that's not necessarily true. I believe in the end, you may be crying like Diarconia uh, in, in Atlas Shrugged, but John Galt is right. Some things cannot be fixed. I loved my time in California, adored my time in California. Wouldn't move back to California if everything depended on it. And, um, and you got to let California fail before it can be better. The lights have to go off. That's what has to happen. If Michigan is going to treat people this way and not be a right-to-work state, people have to leave Michigan and businesses have to leave Michigan. We're not going to put up with this. Bye. And then you leave that crazy behind, you come someplace else that welcomes you with open arms, and you don't bring the crazy with you. You don't go back to terrible, awful, dreadful ideas. And forcing people into unions if they want to work is a dreadful, awful, terrible idea. I mean, just the worst. Keep it here. I'm Tony Katz. So one has to ask what the purpose is for the United States regarding Ukraine. And the purpose, of course, is our assistance to Ukraine. Tony Katz, Tony Katz, today, it's good to be with you. I've made this argument. I know some of you disagree with me. I think we should be assisting Ukraine. I am a believer that while I don't want troops on the ground, while I have real issues with the Patriot missile system and and, and the M1A1 tanks, uh, because they're going to require a, a knowledge base that I don't believe that the Ukrainian soldier has, and I think it's going to take a long time for them to get, does that then require U.S. troops to be operating those systems, helping with those systems, training in, in Ukraine on those systems? To me, those are all provocative actions. My argument is certainly not about whether or not I want to put guns in the hands of Ukrainian soldiers. Ukraine was invaded, and Russia doesn't care, Vladimir Putin doesn't care, if he kills a million Ukrainians. He doesn't care if it takes him a million Russians to do it either. 
So there is a an interesting in the United States kind of back and forth on this. And a lot of people are taking a look at a fair amount of Republican positioning here and saying, wait a second, this isn't how Republicans usually see things. Now they, they're okay with, with an invasion of another nation. They don't think they should be in, uh, talking about it. They don't think that we should be investing in, in helping Ukraine. As a matter of fact, you take a look at Ron DeSantis, presidential candidate, one would assume, referring to it as a territorial dispute. You're like, what in the world is this? Meanwhile, DeSantis is taking it on the chin for that comment. And then the media is spinning this into a bigger, well, you see, he was answering the questions from Tucker Carlson at Fox News. And there's a whole Tucker Carlson wing of the Republican Party. And Tucker Carlson is the enemy. Well, media needing a boogeyman they are going to go after somebody. The question is, where are we on foreign policy? What is the Biden policy on this? What should be our policy on Ukraine? And to what extent? And did Ron DeSantis really say something so egregious? Noah Rothman joins me right now from National Review. You find his work at uh, nationalreview.com. He is the author of a couple of books, including The Rise of the New Puritans, which you can find at amazon.com or wherever fine books are sold. Uh, You've got the piece this week, Ron DeSantis Gets Ukraine Wrong. Is it that statement, is that line in his statement compared to the entirety of the statement, or are you saying that in the entirety of the statement, Ron DeSantis doesn't understand uh, the value of supporting Ukraine? Well, in my piece, which is pretty long, I try to dissect the entirety of his statement because the entirety of his statement deserves to be read and dissected. Um, when it comes to the policy particulars, I think he gets probably 85% of it wrong, um, with the exception of the fact that he doesn't believe, and I don't believe, that Joe Biden has articulated early and often enough precisely what America's material interests are in this war in Europe and what we're doing to secure them. That's a valid criticism. The policy particulars, I think, are debatable, and I come on the other side of that debate, but I don't think any of that's going to be remembered. Why I think this is a very big mistake for Ron DeSantis is in particular his opening line, which was a very obvious pander to Tucker Carlson and his audience, where he suggested, as you said, that this is a territorial dispute. He's going to be made to explain himself on that one frequently, which means he's going to struggle to have to defend it because it's indefensible. This is a territorial dispute in the same way that a bank robber and a depositor have a dispute over money. It establishes false equivalencies between invader and invaded, technical, moral, strategic, Um, And I don't think it's a a defensible position, and he's going to be made to explain himself. And I don't think he's going to have a solid answer for that, and frankly, he's going to have to give it a lot. So it's surmountable. It's not the end of his campaign, but I think he really did step on it. And a lot of people are are yelling at the people who noticed that he's got, you know, uh, feces all over his shoes and not frustrated at the person who stepped in the puddle. So let's talk about this idea of where he came to the theory that Russia's invasion of Ukraine is a territorial dispute. Where do you think that came from? I think that came from Tucker's audience. I mean, this is the case that he has been making, that this is frankly just a squabble over parcels of land that we have no interest in, and it frankly distracts from the primary geostrategic challenge of the United States in the 21st century, uh, which is China. And I think he'll also struggle to explain why a hypothetical land grab by the Chinese in the Strait or the South China Sea is of more 
urgent and acute uh, potential threat to the United States strategic security than the ongoing land grab by a great power that has challenged us and continues to challenge us for geo- geostrategic primacy in, the, in Europe on NATO's borders with now states let's, with whom we have defense pacts with. Now let's talk about what he, what he means when he says territorial dispute. Talking to Noah Rothman of National Review, nationalreview.com, he, the argument is from, from Vladimir Putin that the Donbass region, and, and you'll correct me if I get this wrong, you, you are far more of a student of it than I, but I think I know a thing or two or about a thing or two. The Donbass region, Donetsk and Luhansk, these people are not actually Ukrainian. They are ethnically Russian. They feel it in their core. They feel it in their soul. They feel it in their bones. And these people want to be Russian. And because of Ukrainian oppression, we had to step in and save these people. And this war is about putting an end to Ukraine's abuse of these people who are truly Russian. That's the story, if I have it right, that Vladimir Putin is trying to sell as, as a cover for uh, the, the invasion. Uh, that's not, in your view, what the story is. No, I mean, that was the story in 2014. Um, and it's predicated, I suppose, on... Uh, as you say, um, the language that is spoken primarily in the East and in Crimea and uh, voting patterns in the 2004 presidential election and the 2008 presidential election, Ukrainian presidential election. Um, and that just hasn't been operative for a very long time. And the notion here that this was some sort of a desired effect, that this invasion, the 2014 invasion, which you're talking about, was some sort of a desired outcome on the part of uh, Ukrainians in this part of the world um, presupposes that we're, what we're seeing here is an insurrection. What we saw in the last eight years is an insurrection on the part of ethnic Russians and not a command and a controlled and commanded operation by uh, proxy forces operated by Moscow. That's not a debatable proposition. That is exactly what we've seen. And in the interim, since the 2014 invasion, you've seen the development of a Ukrainian national identity that expands well into the eastern part of, the, of uh, this country that was once uh, favorable, amenable to integration into a Russian economic zone and not into a Euro- European economic zone. The aspirations, the sentiments of Ukrainians, as we see them in every opinion poll that's been taken in the interim, there really is no other data to suggest otherwise, suggests Ukrainians are much more interested in integrating with Europe now than they were prior to the 2014 invasion, in part because of the threat, the acute threat to their sovereignty and lives and their children that Russia represents. So it was a propagandistic, pretextual argument for military force against a sovereign power in 2014. It is utterly inoperative today. So we take a look now at going back to DeSantis's commentary, and we discuss this this Tucker Carlson conversation, and there's this real desire to say that Tucker Carlson single-handedly has huge control over new uh new era republican foreign policy um there's something i think traditional about the idea that maybe just maybe we should not be in every entanglement and certainly trump popularized such a thing but there's always been that thread that 
conversation, I think it certainly got louder post-Iraq when we're like, wait a second, what's going on here? I think it certainly gets louder after 20 years of Afghanistan and you realize you trained a military that that folded in about three and a half hours. So is Tucker tapping into something new that is wholly problematic or is Tucker inventing something new and he actually has more control over the Republican Party than I give him credit for? Mm, I think it's easy to overstate his influence. I don't think he's tapping into something new in the Republican Party. I think he's tapping into something very old in the Republican Party. I think he's tapping into a, a, a skepticism of foreign entanglements that typified Republican politics prior to the Second World War. And indeed, sometime after the Second World War, as uh, the Eisenhower campaign rescued the Republican Party from a campaign uh, led by Robert Taft, who was Mr. Republican at the time, was skeptical of NATO, didn't want to ascend, to ascend into NATO, uh, didn't like foreign entanglements and alliances. And this is a sort of a very Republican feature, a big R Republican feature of this party. Uh, but we're not talking about North Africa or Central Asia. We're talking about Europe and the Atlantic Alliance, of which we're members. And the integrity of that alliance uh, is our primary interest, maintaining it, and breaking it is Russia's foremost geostrategic goal. And that's what, and they still have very much the capacity to do so. One of the problems with the arguments against America's involvement, and it is involved, I mean, the, the conversation, when you get into it with people who are skeptical of this sort of thing, evolves into, well, it's eventually going to draw in Americans, because they really aren't arguing the features and the contours of the conflict as it exists today. It must spiral out in order to justify their antipathy towards it. But if we're talking about the contours of the, of the, uh, of the conflict today as we support it, it is designed to keep the NATO alliance together. You have very, somewhat skeptical members of the alliance in the West about this conflict. You have wild cards like Germany and Turkey. You have gung-ho members on the frontier like the Baltics and Poland. All of them would be pursuing their own disparate foreign policies with vastly more potential for a conflagration if Washington wasn't playing its primary role, the role that it has occupied for the last 70 years, the first among equals, prima inter paris, the, the nation that leads responses and coordinates those responses. Uh, in our absence, if we were to simply abdicate that role, you'd have the Baltics doing whatever they want, Poland being very aggressive, maybe putting troops into uh, Ukraine to, to secure its interests, which are vitally threatened by this conflict. You'd have Western Europeans trying to cut a separate deal. You'd have Germans probably talking to Moscow. Turkey talking to Moscow, and you'd break the alliance, and that would advance uh, one of Russia's primary strategic goals that it could not secure in the Cold War. It would be remarkable if this truncated rump state managed to secure them now just because we didn't have the will to pursue our interests. Talking to Noah Rothman of Commentary Magazine, his book, The Rise of the New Puritans, available at Amazon.com, wherever fine books are sold, and his piece at National Review, Ron DeSantis Gets Ukraine Wrong. Uh, you said you disagreed with about 85% of it, agreed with, with 15% of it. You're, you're favoring the idea of providing them weapons. You favor the idea of funding do you also favor the idea of troops on ground in theater, I guess is a way you could describe it, to help with the training, to help with uh, coordination? Do you believe that the United States should be that level of involved? Because maybe our, our problem is we haven't, because Joe Biden hasn't done it, and I've discussed that many times, I've discussed it with you, hasn't established goals and publicly stated them, 
we don't quite know where the line is of involvement to you and 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 your thinking what what should be the proper line of involvement yeah so if you followed the biden administration's thinking over the course of this war publicly at least and the really like unattributable senior administration officials say kind of reports um it has been this argument with themselves over what platforms are valuable, what platforms are escalatory, what would really anger the Russians, what we can give just enough to Ukraine to preserve their sovereignty from being completely overrun. And then maybe we don't want to do this because we have to train these, these troops. And that would mean that Ukrainians, it would take them years to understand it. And we'd have to put Americans on the ground. And then they overcome these arguments. Let's just take, for example, most recently, because there have been so many, one of the myths of this uh, conflict is that the, the West has secured Ukraine's sovereignty by providing them weaponry. It's not that way. If you look at the actual, and I have a piece in a National Review about this, if you look at the history of it, we, uh, we've shaken loose these platforms that have advanced the Ukrainian position, high Mars, and, uh, drones, and loiter weapons, only after Ukraine has secured victories on the ground. They justify our own involvement in it by their own successes. So there's a myth there. But let's just take the Patriot missile batteries and M1 tanks. First of all, M1s aren't going to make it to the battlefield within the next year because we're not giving them our existing stockpiles. We're building them from scratch. So this is sort of a uh, – the idea here was that we would say yes to this only to unlock the supply of Panther tanks in places like Finland and Poland and Germany. Um, but that's a digression. The notion here that we can – that they have to be trained on the ground in these sort of things was something the Biden administration said. They hemmed and hawed over it like, oh, we'd, we'd have to put troops on the ground to train them. We're not going to do that. And then all of a sudden, they figured out that you could fly Ukrainians to Oklahoma, and they could train there. And this magical revelation unlocked two, precisely two, Patriot missile batteries to cover areas around Kharkiv and Kyiv. That's it. And that's what we're talking – and this is, for some reason, elements of the Biden administration thought this was so escalatory that Russia would have to respond in an aggressive way, maybe even name us a co-belligerent. And it never happened. And it's been that way over the course of a year that this administration has hemmed and hawed and argued with itself. And then we have DeSantis come out of nowhere and just ratify the Biden administration's bizarre arguments with itself. Why? Why would you give him that cover? We're going to continue this conversation in the near future and well into the future. Noah Rothman, National Review. It's still hard to say National Review considering your time and commentary, but I'll get there. It'll roll off the tongue soon enough. NationalReview.com. I appreciate taking the time, Noah. There is more to get to. I'm Tony Katz. He stands ready to work with That's a lie. Because when a bipartisan group of senators has repeatedly requested to meet with him about social so that somebody who is a current beneficiary will not see her benefits cut by 24%, we have not heard anything on our request. That's rough and tumble language there in in the Senate. Tony Katz, Tony Katz today, good to be with you. That is Senator Bill Cassidy saying to Secretary of the Treasury Janet Yellen, you're lying. You say he's ready and willing to work with Congress because that's the default line. That's a lie. Um, that's a, that is a very, very clear and direct statement. It really, it truly is. And, and, and I'm happy to see it. Too many politics and not enough work. I feel that way absolutely about the southern border, and I know you do too as well.
It's just too much chitty chat and not enough work. And by the way, that was chitty chat. Don't worry. I'm keeping my job one more day. Whether you like it or not. (laughs) Very curious to see where the markets finish tomorrow and whether or not we're done with people being concerned about the banks or, or are we just at the start? Is this really at the start? 